Welcome back to our two-part podcast episode series where we dive into our Serious Mental Illness Echo Series. Earlier this week, we heard from lead facilitators and co-PIs of the series, Drs. Dorian Miller and Daniel Hanna. Today, we'll hear from some of the other amazing individuals who made this project such a success. First, we'll hear from Dr. Barrett Kern, a clinical psychologist who was both part of our facilitation team and also acted as the liaison to the community advisory board. Then, we'll hear from Karen, a member of our board and our caregiver representative for the series. And finally, we'll hear from Dr. Michael Quinn, who led the data and evaluation of the series. Let's jump right in. I'm so happy that you're here to talk with us about the series and about your experience with it. Um, And the first thing I'd love to do is just have you introduce yourself. Oh, sure. Uh, My name is Dr. Barrett Kern and I'm a clinical psychologist. So my role was to be a liaison between the community advisory board members and the kind of core study team of the ECHO SMI project. And in general to as part of that role, I would make arrangements for the quarterly board meetings and manage like the stipends that were paid to the board members, as answer questions that they had about meetings or the study in general, and also a little bit to help recruit uh, consumer representatives for the community advisory board, if possible. Can you talk a little bit about how the community advisory board was involved with the series, what their role was in it? Sure. So their role was to provide a variety of perspectives from the various types of board members and to offer critique mainly of the study methodology and kind of how the study staff would be thinking of engaging with like the study data and all that. And the board was composed of various professionals, like some physicians, primary care physicians, psychiatrists, people familiar in their work with the SMI community, like people from the NAMI organization. We had a hospital director, and then to also include individuals who identified as having serious mental illness and also a caregiver of an individual with serious mental illness. You know, having individuals with such a wide variety of perspectives really afforded the team to have a much broader array of areas of expertise and ideas to consider. And so then the team was able to make changes to the study methodology and the series content that we would deliver to the study participants that would probably have never been considered without the board's input. So that was very cool. Um, And could you talk a little bit about what the impact was of having those two consumer representatives and the one caregiver representative on the board? The most obvious impact was the was the feedback that the series was missing input from individuals with SMI and that their voices should be included in the series in order to help research study participants maybe more fully understand the impact of this kind of series on their healthcare that they're able to provide their patients. And based on that feedback, the study was modified to include a few short segments where some of our board members spoke about their experience with the healthcare system and with recovery from their serious mental illness. And I think 
segments like these were powerful as teaching tools in large part because individuals providing their perspective did not really sugarcoat their experiences. And both patient voice segments, for example, included stories of the patient essentially being failed by their providers in serious ways, such as the provider not following up perhaps on a patient's indication that they had been feeling suicidal or the experience of no one in the healthcare setting they were in, taking the time to reassure them of their privacy and having that healthcare setting become a setting that started to feel unsafe for them and uncared for. To be honest, as somebody that's worked almost exclusively with patients with SMI for the last 15 years, I feel like I can say that these stories are really more the rule and not the exception in terms of people's experiences in a lot of healthcare settings. A lot of adults with SMI don't feel heard or adequately cared for, and I think it's important to hear those stories and to know that their work really matters and can really affect a patient in some serious ways. And so I thought that those were particularly powerful segments that started to be included in the series. Absolutely. And and hopefully part of the outcome is that our providers who have been trained to have heard these segments are able to act in ways that are opposite to what some of those consumers have experienced. In addition to your role as the liaison to the board and and your work uh, in that capacity, we were also lucky to have you on the series in so many of our sessions providing your perspective. Um, You mentioned your training as a clinical psychologist, and I'd love to hear a little bit about how uh, your experience, your voice uh, as a psychologist was incorporated into the series? I think that my perspective helped in a few ways. And some of the ways that come to mind are, you know, increasing uh, focus during case presentations on uh, achieving a correct diagnosis, as well as a focus on non-medication interventions and also bringing trauma really like to the forefront, I think, of a lot of our conversations. And so when it comes to, you know, correct diagnosing, as a psychologist, I generally spend more time with patients than a lot of other types of healthcare providers. And because I have more time to talk with patients, I'm generally able to get more details about their symptoms, their life, how they're experiencing different stressors, and that when it comes to correctly diagnosing serious mental illnesses, the process can be extremely difficult for a lot of reasons. And a lot of my background also is in specifically being trained to do diagnostic interviewing. And so just being able to bring all of those skills and kind of that level of expertise into the series, I thought was really helpful. And the ECHO SMI participants would bring in really difficult cases to review. And these are just very complex cases and complex disorders. And so being able to help providers correctly, you know, come to a diagnosis as best we can assume, then they're much better set up to understand what the appropriate treatment for that specific diagnosis is. So I was really happy that I could introduce that more maybe into the series. In terms of non-medication interventions, I tend to conceptualize what people need in terms of relational or psychological, emotional needs, and people with SMI have all of those same needs in addition to their serious mental illness. So I think it all is helpful to consider. So having professionals on the team that have these different areas of expertise brings a really nice kind of rounding out to 
what we're able to suggest and recommend and, you know, help guide the providers to so that they're considering all these aspects of the person, not just like their psychiatric symptoms and their illness. And then in terms of trauma, I feel like I help draw a lot of attention to the need for providers to be really trauma-informed in their work and to consider the role of trauma in patients' lives. Adults with SMI tend to report extremely high rates of all forms of trauma. There's a lot of research that will link severe childhood trauma with the eventual onset in adulthood of psychotic symptoms, especially auditory hallucinations. And it can be really difficult, I think, especially for primary care physicians who have so much to do in generally a short appointment time to be able to distinguish maybe something like severe PTSD from a psychotic or mood disorder. So helping the providers, you know, through the series remember to consider the role of trauma and, you know, potential PTSD uh, diagnosis. I think it's helpful in just keeping that in their awareness so that they're not missing trauma or PTSD in their patients. Is there anything I haven't asked about that you want to share? Just a general maybe sentiment. And I've said this for the last many years that I'm just so happy that projects like this are being done and that I think more and more you're seeing lots of efforts being made to prioritize training as it relates to the SMI population. And it's just really great to see it's a population that I think historically has kind of just fallen through the cracks in so many ways, like in our society and especially in our healthcare system. And so I think a project like The ECHO SMI project helps to reduce a little bit of those disparities. There's lots of changes that still need to be made, but it's really meaningful to at least see some of this work being done and care given to a community that really needs it. I'm Karen. I provided the caregiver voice. And I'm also on the advisory board. Wonderful. And and could you share a little bit about why you chose to join the advisory board and share your experiences as a caregiver in the series? I was asked by my son's psychiatrist to be a caregiver voice. He thought it would be very beneficial for the participants to hear from a caregiver. And I felt like it was valuable for me to provide back maybe some of the resources and some lessons learned that I had gained from dealing with different providers. I hope that through my time on the advisory board that I was able to kind of contribute a layperson's view to kind of discuss, gosh, I think this is really effective because I learned a lot and because I've done so much research in this very you know, specific area and I could see where oh, this is so beneficial or thought it was valuable for me then with my caregiver voice and presentation to provide the providers with a lot of resources that I had used and felt were super valuable as a caregiver. I'd like to to talk a little bit more about the community advisory board position for a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, And just uh, if there's anything you'd like to share about what the experience of being on the board was like. I felt like I had a lesser impact on the advisory board, but it was really rewarding to be a part of it because it was great to see a community of providers come together with such focus on helping 
people in the community that may otherwise slip through the cracks. So I really enjoyed being a part of it and I really enjoyed seeing the metrics and seeing how it made a difference and feeling like I was a part of that. And then thinking to the other part of your involvement with sharing the caregiver voice, are there things that as a caregiver, you hope the providers who participated in our series would walk away from your presentation having learned or new things for them to think about? I felt like one of the most important lessons that I could impart on providers and hopefully they got from the series is understand what you don't know and be willing to not just guess with somebody's life or with somebody's path forward, but use the resources that you have in front of you and don't be afraid to say, this is very complex and I need help with it. And I think second is have a list of resources to hand off to the caregivers and the family members. We all have internet now, we can all Google But for most of the people, it's such a new experience. It's a new landscape. You don't even know where to start. And I found that when anyone could give me a packet of information or give me little tidbits, then that benefited me so much. Um, Contacts, programs, outpatient treatment centers, success stories to give the families hope and timeline what it could be measured in for different diagnoses, whether it's going to be months or years or tens of years and what that future looks like, because the caregivers are the first line of defense and they need to have the hope and the energy to help their loved one make it through this. And without the resources, it's just too hard to even navigate this new landscape. For participants who were in our series or other participants who may be listening in now, are there ways that you think providers can best integrate caregivers into a patient's care plan and care team when when we're thinking about serious mental illness? I think that given some of these diagnoses, you have to be a little bit more creative so that you can have a relationship with the caregiver and always remember that you can listen. Even without the documents, you can always listen to the caregiver and integrate their input into your care. You don't always have to, doesn't have to be a two-way flow. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective here today and also as a caregiver voice on the community advisory board. Um, Is there anything I haven't asked about that you think is important to discuss or share? I think that the biggest thing that I enjoy getting out as a caregiver voice is that there can be hope and there can be successful lives that really don't look much different than anyone else without a serious mental illness. So I think that that's kind of exciting. And if, and if I can be like the one person that they know, well, I know that person had some success in their life, even though, you know, despite all these obstacles, then I think that that's fantastic because so many times you, you don't know about that those people exist. So thrilled to have you with us to talk about our data and evaluation and its impact on the series. But first, I'd love to start with you just introducing yourself. My my name is Michael Quinn. I'm a social psychologist by training. I've been at the University of Chicago for about 30 years now. I do a lot of evaluation. I do a lot of qualitative research. I have a pretty good history of, of developing and evaluating educational programs to help patients modify their health behavior and improve their health outcomes. I do a lot of training with providers on how they can best help their patients to modify their, their health behavior change. Well, we are, we're glad that part of that includes you working with our, our ECHO SMI team. I'd love to know just if you can give us an overview of what the data from this series has shown us. 
it might be helpful to start with sort of what the data are. Well, the goal of the program is certainly to, to provide a distance educational program to help increase the knowledge and skill of primary care docs, primary care providers in urban health care settings that would lead to sort of improved management of their patients with serious mental illness and resulting in improved outcomes for those patients. So what we were interested in looking at was what were the behavior changes that are number one self-reported by participants in the program and also looking at some of the, the behavior change, the practice behavior change that are actually occurring in, in the field by those providers, and then looking at sort of the impact of those, the practice behavior change on the outcomes that accrue to their patients with serious mental illness. As measures for the pro, for program effectiveness, we use a series of pre and post sort of surveys to ask participants uh, about their self-confidence, their, their perceived competency in a variety of different sort of SMI, serious mental illness management behaviors. And we also looked at uh, sort of the frequency with which they self-report engaging in, in a series of targeted sort of SMI uh, management behaviors. Beyond self-report, we worked to develop uh, serious mental illness patient registries that could track sort of not only the uh, practice behavior of, of providers in those settings uh, as documented in the medical record, but also the outcomes that are accruing to their patients. So what we saw was in, among the survey data, we saw that there was a significant increase across almost all of the, so the practice behavior items in, in terms of self-efficacy for engaging in those behaviors. And that's really important because we know that people don't engage in behaviors that they don't see themselves as having the requisite skills or the requisite capacity to engage in those behaviors. Their rated competence in those, in those skills increased significantly. Among uh, providers who have prescription status, prescription privilege status, uh, we saw a significant increase in, in behaviors related to managing and prescribing antipsychotic medications, antidepressant medications over and above baseline. We also developed a patient registry, and we, we learned that developing patient registries can be kind of resource intensive. And it became increasingly apparent when the COVID pandemic came a year and a half ago. So we're beginning to look at some of those results. Uh, and we're very hopeful that we're going to see significant changes in provider practice behavior that are reflected also in, in patient outcomes. And could you share a little bit more about what the registries are, what they look like, and what goes into them? Essentially, it includes information from the medical record that includes all those patients that have been diagnosed from the beginning of the program, summer of 2018 through the summer of 2020, all those patients who had been diagnosed with a serious mental illness, ICD-9 or ICD-10 code, and all of the data that's relevant in the medical record uh, to each of the visits that they attended over the course of that time. So we're able to follow patients over time, to follow their uh, diagnoses, to follow the medication that's being prescribed, the dosage, the screeners that were being used that were recommended by the program, PHQ-9s and GAD-7s and other sorts of measures, to look at the degree to which providers were now treating to target rather than simply prescribing the same medication over and over again, but sort of raising the dosage or changing the medication to get a better outcome which are some of the objectives that were targeted in the, in the SMI program. So we're able to track that and look at changes in medication, look at changes in referrals, look at changes in, in counseling. And that's what we're looking at and currently looking at now. 
there's there's a bonus to using a, a registry like that because it provides providers with feedback. So a provider might have several hundred patients on their panel, and it's real difficult for them to target individual patients and to look at patterns over time and look at things that they might change, not only with one or two patients, but sort of a pattern that they might change in order to improve the outcomes for their patients. But a registry can provide that opportunity to get objective feedback rather than sort of individualized patient feedback, but look at patterns over time. Thank you to Barrett, Karen, and Mike for your invaluable expertise and for being part of this episode. As we look back on the series and the project as a whole, we are so grateful to our facilitation team, our advisory board members, the patients and caregiver who shared their stories with our cohorts, our partnerships with the Chicago area federally qualified health centers who helped us pilot this program, our funders who made the project possible financially, and local agencies, thresholds, and Grand Prairie services who kindly partnered with us to offer community-based resources to the patients of our participating providers in this series. And of course, we are grateful to every provider who joined us for any of our cohorts along the way. Thank you to everyone who made this series possible and to those who have joined us for these two episodes to learn more about our serious mental illness echo. We look forward to sharing more about the impact of this project in the future. Until then, we hope you enjoy the rest of your August.